All right. Good morning, everybody. After that, good morning, everybody. It's not very often you get to start a sermon like that, right? About once every 108 years you get to start a sermon like that, right? Folks, uh, there was not a lack of joy uh, Wednesday night when the Cubs won uh, their first World Series since 1908. That, that's a lot. I mean, that's before smartphones, people. That's before Facebook and the internet and all of that stuff. I mean, before, uh, before most of us. So uh, there was not a lack of joy to be found. And again, I get it. Not everybody's a Cubs fan. We want to be sensitive. Some of you are Cardinals fans and are taking a little hard. You haven't come to the light yet. Uh, but we'll get, I'm just, I'm just kidding, right? But I get, not all of us like baseball, not of us like sports or even the Cubs, but you cannot ignore the fact uh, of the joy that was abounding uh, on the field with those players and the stands if you, uh, and if you watched it uh, in, in living rooms all over the country and all over the world. It was quite uh, the thing. And trust me, I could go on and on about the game and just preach an entire sermon about the Cubs. Uh, that would not necessarily be a biblical sermon, but it would be about the Cubs. We're going to talk about them today because here's the deal. The thing that I noticed the most uh, that it kind of stuck out to me was what happens, uh, joy makes people do funny things. What happens when grown men, professional athletes, experience joy, right? dancing and touching and hugging and chest bumping. And you have these grown men, these professional athletes that are getting paid $20 million a year, a year and yet when joy overtakes you, you start doing this in the outfield. I don't know, like, what, what is that all about, right? Like Ben Zobris, the MVP of the World Series, a strong, devout Christian man of God, lives five blocks from Wrigley Field with his wife, who, get this, is a Christian recording artist. Like, how cool is that? Ben's, like, the, the MVP said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. No wonder he had joy. Like, that's a double win. You get Jesus and the World Series, right? And so he's jumping up and down. Uh, and, and joy joy is found in some of the most unlikely places, like there in Cleveland with grown professional men, athletes, experiencing this deep, deep joy. If we look close enough, joy can be found almost anywhere, even when you least expect it. And nobody knows that better than the author of the scripture reading that you just heard read a little bit ago, the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you this morning to open up to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. The book of Philippians, chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles or your, uh, your Bible app on your phone, if you're going to tweet, tweet about the sermon. So uh, we're, we're in chapter 1, and we've been in this series. Uh, we started last week at all of our campuses uh, about the book of Philippians called The Four Secrets, uh, Four Secrets to a Joy-Filled Life. And we're looking at the book of Philippians, which seems like four secrets to a joy-filled life. Considering the series that we just finished here the last few months in the book of Job, right? This is like the exact opposite of that, right? You, Job is all about pain and suffering, and Philippians is all about joy. It's like, oh, good, thank God. I think what we'll find, though, is that they have a lot more in common than we think. I think what we'll find is that true joy is not actually found in the absence of pain and suffering, but oftentimes right in the middle of it. And that's where we pick up the story today in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. It's one of his prison letters. There's three or four of those in scripture. Paul is writing to this church in Philippi that he helped start. And, uh, but Paul's not writing this letter in the comfort and security of his own home or a private office or something like that, but he's writing this letter about joy from a dark, cold jail cell in Rome. 
as a lot of his letters were written from jail, from prison. And this is all after, like, he's been in prison for sharing the gospel, for preaching the gospel all over Asia Minor. And so here he is in prison by the Roman government. This is all after multiple beatings, multiple floggings, uh, being betrayed by his friends, getting, uh, uh, experiencing uh, hardship and heartache and, and being shipwrecked and left all alone for days and almost starving to death, all of this. And now he's sitting in a jail cell after, after all of that. It seems like an ideal time to write a book about joy, don't you think? And yet here he is, over and over again in the book of Philippians. You can't ignore it. Starting verse 4, Paul starts out the entire letter, I pray with joy. He's writing this from prison. I pray with joy. Later on in verse 18, he says, I continue to rejoice when I think of you. Verse 25, that your joy in the faith, speaking of the Philippians. Later on in chapter 4, he says, rejoice. And he says, it's so important. He says, again, I say rejoice. It's a command to have joy as a Christian. And so here's Paul in jail, and he's saying, in the midst of everything I'm going through, right in the middle of it is joy. Maybe you want to look at it this way if you're more of a visual learner like I am. If everything in that circle encompasses Paul's life, you could say that Paul has plenty of pain. He has plenty of suffering. He is in solitary confinement. He is all alone. He's had trials. He's had difficulties. Basically, he's in jail. That's a dead end for his life. His life is not going anywhere. He's alone. He's experienced abandonment. All of these things abandoned. And right in the middle of that, Paul is saying, it's all right, because I got this thing called joy. Not happiness, joy. Everybody say joy. Joy. Some of you are like, joy. Very serious about my joy this morning. Right in the middle of it, joy. And yet the world looks at that and they would say, that's not possible. How can you have joy when all those other things are going on in your life? And yet, if you look at that, I believe, man, that is a picture of the challenging week that we have had as a community. I can't remember a week. As a pastor in this community, I cannot remember a week that as we've experienced such polar opposites of emotions. Can you? I mean, just to give you a, a picture, we started out on, on Tuesday night, if you've been away for a while, we're doing these forums, these gatherings called One Church, and we're partnering with uh, Elam, Christian Fellowship, which is primarily an African-American church here in our community down by the Capitol, and all of our campuses of hope, we came together last Tuesday, and get this, had a forum about tearing down the walls of racial and ethnic injustice in our city. Tuesday night, okay? We worshiped together, different backgrounds, different ethnic ethnicities. It was awesome. People shared about some of the hatred and some of the prejudice, the racism that they've experienced in their life. And as hope, we came and we listened. We didn't argue, we didn't debate, we didn't try to get our way, we didn't try to say, well, all lives matter. We just said, in that moment, black lives matter, right? We talked about that before. And we listened. We were quick to listen and slow to speak. We worshiped together in diversity to one of the guys from Elam stood up and said, you know what? I think this is a picture of what heaven's going to look like. I hate to break it to you, but there's not going to be Lutherans in heaven. There's not going to be color in heaven. It's just going to be us, one church in our diversity and in the, in the beauty of that. And yet six or seven hours later, coming off of that emotional and spiritual high, we wake up on Wednesday morning to the news of this tragedy. 
coming off this emotional high, and then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. That's not supposed to happen. Two police officers are not supposed to be gunned down in their cars in Urbandale, in Iowa. That's not supposed to happen in Iowa. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa, right? That's what we live into. We pride ourselves on that. This is, this, that happens in bigger cities, tragedies like this, and this hits a little bit too close to home. And yet in the middle of this tragedy, I'm so thankful that as a church, we have always had a great relationship with the Des Moines Police Department and all the other law enforcement agencies here in town. And I tell you what, we have had too many funerals for policemen this year at Hope. The next of which is tomorrow morning. I, as a parent now, you know, you look at these things a little bit differently, don't you? Because there's families involved. And so instead of playing the blame game and making it political and using it to move our agenda forward, you know what I think we're called to do first? There'll be a time for that. First and foremost, we're called to mourn with those who mourn. Because that's what God does with us. He meets us in our suffering and God weeps with us. God weeps for these families. And so we pray for the families of the victims and we pray for the family of the shooter. And there's this provocative statement that Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, love your enemies. <sighs> really, Jesus? He said, I never said following me was going to be easy. Never said reading the Bible was going to be easy. <laughs> and yet we're called to love and pray for our enemies, those who persecute us, those who hate us, those who kill. We're called to love our enemies, and so we pray for them, and we know that God is right there with us in our pain. This is a terrible time in our community, but it is a great time to be the church, that we're called to step in. And so give a police officer a hug this week. Give him a handshake. Let him know how much we appreciate them and everything that they do. So you have that on Wednesday morning, and then I don't know if this is theologically correct or not, but it just so happens there's a little baseball game on Wednesday night, and I don't know if God just says, you got all this going on in Des Moines, Iowa, boom, Cubs win. Like, it's like God knew we needed it or something like that. Like, praise God, literally praise God for the World Series, amen? Like, he knew we needed that. So he's like, I'm just gonna tweak the things with the Cleveland Indians a little bit. Sorry if you're an Indians fan. Like, we need the Cubs to win, and so they do. And I, I, just the complete opposite of emotions. I can't remember the last time my wife and I were dancing in our living room two and a half hours past our bedtime. Our kids have been in bed for three and a half hours, and we're like, we are going to hate ourselves in the morning. It goes to 10 innings. I'm like, God, please, it's a school night. You know, and like, we are literally dancing in our living room doing what I call the silent, the whisper yell. Have you ever heard of this? <sighs> right? The Cubs win. The Cubs win. We're jumping up and down. And just like the extreme opposite end of the emotional spectrum. It's like, I don't know, but I think God just knew we needed that. He knew that we needed some joy, and only he can bring that joy in the midst of our disappointment. It was like we had a, a Job-like week, and then on Wednesday night, we got to experience some Philippians. <laughs> we got to experience some joy in the middle of that. But I was looking at that, and I was looking at our story in Philippians, like, doesn't that pretty much describe life? Isn't that the human experience that Jesus even says himself, in this world you will have trouble, and yet along the way we get these glimpses of joy. It's like worshiping with all these ethnicities on Tuesday nights. It's like, it's a glimpse of heaven. I'm watching the Cubs game, and I'm watching people weep 
tears of joy and families come together. And this one guy went and drove eight hours to his, his father that had died that was a lifelong Cubs fan and listened to the Game 7 on the radio at his father's gravesite because he said, we're going to watch the Cubs win the World Series together. Like, that's a glimpse of heaven, right? It's a baseball game, but it's so much deeper than that. And yet, God's saying, and, and Paul's saying here to us in Philippians, like, this is possible, the world would say, no, 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 no. The world would look at it like this. You've got all these things going on in your life. You've got all these tragedies and, and pain and suffering going on in your community this week. And you've got all these things going on. Joy must be out here because those two things can't coexist. You can't have pain and suffering and joy at the same time. That, that, that some of these have to be removed. I, I gotta, God's got to come through for me. I've got to get some things fixed or resolved in my life. Then I can have more joy. Then once we replace those, then I can bring in joy. And Paul says, that's not how it works. That's how it would work if we were talking about happiness. But we're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. Everybody say joy. joy. Mean it. Joy, right? Joy, right? Everybody say joy. joy. We're talking about joy. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. And my question to you this morning is, do you know the difference? Some of you would just use those words interchangeably. I would say that happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. And, and when I say joy, some of you are thinking of like, oh, that's like an outgoing person. They have lots of joy. They are extroverted. I'm not talking about a personality thing. I'm talking about a, a fruit of the Spirit thing, that when the, the, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives that produces a certain characteristics in us, certain fruit, one of which, as we go down the list, you know, the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kind, all those things are evident. They are descriptive of a normal Christian life. It's not like, well, I'm more of a private person, John, and I'm not very outgoing, and so I can't have a lot of joy. No, joy is irregardless of your circumstances. I'm talking about a deep down in your soul joy and contentment that is completely independent of the changes and chances and circumstances in life. I'm talking about some, a joy that can be the anchor to your soul when you're being tossed to and fro on a week like this, when your emotions are high and low and everywhere in between, when you're on the mountaintop in life and when you're in the valley. This is not when things are going good for me, then I have joy. And when things are going bad for me, I don't have joy. This is I have joy locked in regardless of what's going on. So maybe we need to ask this morning, how's your joy? <laughs> What's the level of joy in your life? Again, if we had to kind of draw a picture of it, if you can imagine, thanks to my amazing artwork skills of drawing 3D objects in fifth grade, this is your joy bucket, okay? Here's joy. How full is your joy bucket today? I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about joy. Everybody say joy. joy. Some of you will smile by the end of the sermon. That's my goal for you, okay? Joy. I'm talking about joy. Is it full? Is it overflowing today? You're like, I'm completely content. I'm okay. Things could not be better. I got the joy of the Lord. Or for some of you, you're saying, yeah, you know, I come to worship. I put in my time. But it's not, it's kind of mediocre joy today. My, my glass is about half full. I, I come to worship. I do the religious thing. But certainly, the joy of the Lord, the gospel, is not anything that I would go out of my way to say, share with anybody or invite anybody to worship. It's just sort of like, not good news, but mediocre news. It's, it's okay. And some of you are saying, actually, if I'm honest, which we encourage you to do in church, you'd say, I'm running on E today. And here's why. I'm waiting on God. <laughs> there are some things in my life that are not yet, that are 
not resolved yet. God is holding out on me, and so I can't have joy because I don't have resolution in some things yet. Would you believe that you could have this? Not just sometimes, but all the time. Joy locked in. That it's not an option like some Christians have joy, a lot of it, and some Christians don't. You just do or you don't. You have the Holy Spirit living in you or you don't. Jesus puts it this way, actually, uh, in John chapter 15. He says this starting in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And then let's, let's read together nice and loud verse 11 up on the screen. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Complete, a.k.a. not lacking anything, meaning locked in. That when you have a roller coaster week like this, it doesn't change are you okay? Are you okay? Are things going to be okay? Is God still in control? Do you have that deep down joy? And yet for some of you are saying, I'm not here. Well, I'm not really close to here either. I, I'm lacking joy. And my question for you this morning is, where did it go? If you're not where you want to be, where did it go? Some of you, you can remember growing up as little kids, you had lots of joy. You remember the innocence and the beauty and the, the unbridled passion that you had for life and everything was great and, and I, my parents, I was growing up and I was loved and I had their love and everything was fine and yet at some point you realized when the shades of innocence were pulled back that we live in a dark, broken world. You had it. But it went somewhere. I mean, you remember those of you that maybe grew up in the church and, and went to Sunday school, you remember the song, right? Sing with me. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Some of you literally just went down in my heart. Yeah, it's down there. It's way down there because I can't see it, right? It's way down there. It's coming up. It's there, right? It's somewhere, but you lost it, right? And how does it say down in my heart to stay? Except it didn't for some of us. Except it didn't. And it went somewhere. And over time, it's just kind of a subtle move down, down the joy bucket here to empty. It went away somewhere, and along the way, you became a very successful adult. You became a very productive, serious, grown-up Christian. A lot of success. A lot of happiness. Not a lot of joy. Even some of you that you would say you have reached the top. You have succeeded in business, you've got a great family, you got a great job, you got enough money, you, you, you're, you, even if you have everything that the world says that you should have, you're sitting there today going, my joy bucket is not full. So what, what, what happened? There's got to be some sort of difference that you can have everything and yet be empty. Maybe success looks a little bit different. So how did we lose it. I believe that when I look at my own life, if I'm honest, when I look at the lives of those around me, there's three thieves of joy. There's three enemies of joy that creep in and over the course of time can steal our joy if we let them. They don't have to if we let them. And the first one, if you're keeping score at home or taking notes, the first thief of joy is waiting. Everybody say waiting. waiting. We, don't, we don't like to wait. What, have you ever done this at the grocery store where you're pulling up? You intentionally look at which line is the shortest right? My wife and I tried that a couple months ago, and it came back to bite us. Like, I went in that aisle, and she went in that aisle. I'm like, yeah, we're those people, right? And I'm like, what are we doing? We don't like to wait, or a stoplight, or waiting for somebody that you love to get home, and we don't like to wait, especially when it's something a little deeper, like 
waiting to find somebody to marry or waiting to find that job or waiting for your marriage to find the fire that it used to have or waiting for the test results for that doctor. Life is filled with not yets. Life is lived in the in-betweens, and because of that, in our waiting, the first casualty is our joy. Because how can I possibly be okay when things are not okay? That would be tough if we were talking about happiness. But we're not talking about happiness, we're talking about joy. Joy is often found in the places that you would least expect it like a jail cell in Rome, or like the place where nobody likes to be, where you're just waiting and hanging on for the ride, and probably the most boring, lack of joy place that you can think of, riding the subway. And yet, right in the middle of that, here comes Coca-Cola with our next video, and I dare you, I dare you to try not to laugh at some point during this video. I know, we're Lutherans, but it's allowed, okay? Take a look. I watched some of you, are like, nope, not gonna do it. I'm really close, but I'm not gonna do it. I've never laughed in church before. I can't do it. I'm Lutheran. It's not allowed. Yes, you can. Absolutely. If you can't laugh in church, where can you laugh? Right? Coca-Cola almost got it. They almost got it that you can find happiness anywhere, but do you know you can find joy anywhere? In the least likely circumstances, on a subway or in a jail cell in Rome, in a dead end in your life. And here we find the Apostle Paul. Back to the story. Look at verse 14. He says, because of my chains, because I'm here, most of the brothers and sisters, not his family, most of the guards have become, get this, confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So instead of saying, oh, woe is me, here I am in these unideal circumstances of my life, I'm just going to wait till the then, I'm going to wait till I get out and then I can get my joy back. You know what Paul does? He starts listening, he starts praying, he starts sharing his faith with the palace guards, the same guards that have beaten him and locked him up in jail, and now he converts all of the guards that are watching him in jail, and those guards go outside the palace and start converting people in their own families and in the community. Most unideal circumstances, Paul could have said, when I get out, then I'll get my joy back. What if the next time that you were in completely unideal circumstances in your life, if you were in waiting for something, instead of waiting and growing angry at bitter at God, what if you said, what is God trying to teach me? What can God do through me to share the gospel that I can do right now that I couldn't do if I were in better circumstances? How has God uniquely put me in this position to share my faith, to have an impact on others while I am waiting? while I'm in the not yet, while I'm in the middle ground of life. That's what Paul did, and it changed things forever. And yet, some of you are saying, well, that's great and all, John, but I'm not sitting in jail today, nor do I plan on being there anytime soon. No, for us, it's a little more subtle than that. For us, it's this idea that joy is somehow elusive and is always there, not here. And we believe this lie that I call the when then lie. And it goes a little something like this. Do you remember all the way back towards the beginning of your life, you're in high school, anybody, some of you are like, that's where I'm at right now. And you're like, I can't wait to get out of my parents' house. Because when I graduate high school and when I get out of my parents' house, then I'll have complete joy and freedom when I get to college. And then I get to college and you're like, wow, this is great and everything. It's a lot of fun. College is wonderful. It's just school gets in the way. But when I graduate from college, then it'll be great. When I get my first job, then I'll make lots of money and it'll be great because you know that money buys happiness. And you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't 
last exactly, or you don't get the job you want. You're like, oh, I need a spouse. I need a husband. I need a godly wife. And so then I get married because really marriage is so easy. And then you get married and you're like, no, 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 no. We need to have some kids because that's where the joy is. When we have kids, then we'll have lots of joy because really how hard can parenting be? And then we have kids and we're like, you know what? I'm really excited for when the kids are out of the house and it's just the two of us again and we kind of get back to, to normalcy and everything. And then, but you know what? The, the job's kind of a drag. So when I get retired, then I'll have my freedom back and I'll do what I want and I'm running out of stage here. And you get to a point at the end of your life where you look back over your life and you say, oh, I missed it. I missed it because... I was always looking for joy in the next thing instead of saying, maybe God wants to meet me right in the middle of my unideal circumstances and newsflash for all of us this morning, I just thought of this during the last service. Maybe all of life is unideal, this side of heaven. We live in a broke, dark, sinful world. And if you're waiting for things to be perfect before you can be okay, you're gonna be waiting a long time. Instead, Jesus says, find joy, find life that I'm offering to you, not happiness that's contingent on your circumstances, locked in joy, and I'm offering that to you here today. I can fill you up. Life, joy is often found in the in-betweens of life. We know that as a church community as well. We've been a, a church for eight years now as this campus, but some of you may not know. Some of you do because you were there. We spent six years worshiping in an elementary school gym at Hubble Elementary. Any Hubble folks around then? A few of you? Okay, awesome. Cool. Well, and the reason that there's very few of you is because we have doubled in size in the last three years. So half of you uh, were not even here three years ago. And so that's why we're talking about this giving campaign today. That's why we're talking about where we've been as a church and where we're going. But I have to tell you, during those first six years, you know, we were loading in and loading out, and it was unideal. It was hard sometimes, and so over those five or six years, I had people come up to me somewhat often and say, hey, John, when are we going to build a real church? And I'd kind of gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, I know what you're saying, but I just, God had changed some things in my heart, and so my response was, we have. He has built us into a church because you're looking at him. Because the church is people. It's not a building of bricks and mortar. It doesn't matter if we're worshiping an elementary school gym or on the side of the road or in a former car dealership. You are the church, and we come together, and the church comes and meets in a building a couple times a week, and then we go out, and we are the church six or seven days a week wherever you go. That's what it means to be the church, and yet I hear so many people that are saying, well, when I get this, when I get this, then I can get serious about my faith, then I can be more involved with church. When is that when going to happen? I hear a lot of people say, man, I really want to get involved, and I really want to do mission. Here's the thing. Everybody wants to go on mission. Nobody wants to stay. I used a quote about a month or so uh, ago, um, and uh, I'm forgetting the author right now, but he said something to the effect of, you know, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Everybody wants to go on mission. Not a lot of people want to stay, and we've realized over the last eight years, ministry in the city is hard. Amen? It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's unideal. And yet we've learned to find joy in the not yet, in the middle of it. And we're learning to do that again. You've got a flyer on your chair this morning. I want you to pull that out again called Building Hope Together. And we've been talking about this giving campaign. And some of you are like, John, why in the world are you talking about joy on the same Sunday where you're asking us for money? 
Well, here's why. Because this campaign is not really about joy. I was not even thinking about saying anything about it today, and yet the fact of the matter is, I think with the kind of week we've had, we need church more than ever. We believe and hope that the local church is the hope of the world, not because of us, but because the Jesus that we encounter in church, because Jesus is the hope of the world. Amen? So we need more healthy, Christ-centered churches growing and changing and changing lives. And so here we are again, living in the middle, living in the not yet. We're here. We have this beautiful building. Many of you have contributed to this campaign, which is above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings, but a lot of you haven't, and you have, this is all new to you. Building Hope Together, we started three years ago, and now we're coming to the end of it, and yet we still have this loan that we need to pay off, this, this thing that's kind of getting in the way of us growing, and as you know, especially during the week, we are out of space <laughs> two years into this thing. We've got great growing pains, problems we're so thankful for, and yet in order to, to grow and possibly make future purposes, we got to pay down this debt where we're at right now. And so we've come up with this great guilt-free uh, campaign slogan that we're going to continue with called Fork Over the Cash. Is that okay if we go with that? that... <laughs> Some of you are like, what? No, that's not it. You know what, our, you know what our campaign slogan is? Find joy. It's really just pray about it. It's between you and God. Nobody will ever tell you what to give. It's, that's between you and God. I just say find joy. You want to talk about unlikely circumstances is the Sunday you happen to show up at church and the pastor says, give us your money, right? Joy is found even in the middle of money and talking about your finances. Here's why. I love how Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And then let's read this together nice and loud. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. We've talked about this before. The Greek word there for cheerfully is hilarion. Everybody say hilarion, which sounds a lot like hilarious because that's the root of where we get the word hilarious. Your, joy, your, your giving should be hilarious giving. It should be joy-filled giving. It should be out of the overflow of your heart that you give. And so let me just say this. If you feel any sort of guilt and pressure to give your normal tithes and offerings in our general fund or above and beyond that to this giving campaign, if there's any guilt or pressure, don't give. Don't give. That's between you and God. This is not out of guilt or pressure. It's out of the joy that God has placed on your heart. And my challenge to you is we're going to be, I invite you back these next two weeks. We're going to be talking a lot about our vision, where we're going the next few years as a church. You're not going to want to miss it. But as we do that, I would challenge you to consider, how can my generous and sacrificial giving experience the same kind of joy that they experienced on the subway? That when I think about money and the church, I'm like, oh man, that's where the joy is at. I can't wait to give because it frees me up from the burdens and the shackles of greed and having to keep it all to myself. There's so much joy in giving. If you want to go deeper with that, grab one of those campaign packets on the way out. Check out the, uh, go ahead and go to the next slide um, about the, the campaign website. Sorry, go back just a couple. Maybe it's back. There we go. That's the campaign uh, website there that's linked up to our website as well. If you're new to this, you can read, watch the video, read all about it. Uh, you can give online and set all of that up uh, online as well. But again, find the joy. Find the joy right in the middle of that. Some of you, you've let money, you've let a bad experience with the church be the thief of joy. For some of you, it's waiting. And for some of you, I have a feeling that these days you've given way to the thief of fear. Is there something going on this Tuesday? I heard there's a lot of people talking about something 
on Tuesday. Do you know anything about that? For some of you, after the political season that it's been and after the week we've had in our community, for some of you, the thief of joy is fear. Fear for your personal and your family's safety. And for a lot of you, you've just grown tired and weary of everything with this election. And you are fearful of the future of our country. You say things are getting worse, the darkness is winning, and some of you have, as the author of Hebrews writes, you have grown weary and lost heart. You've grown weary and lost heart, which is easy to do if we place our hope on our circumstances, which is easy to do if we place our hope on a political system or on getting a certain policy through to law or if we've placed our hope on the economy or even on a particular candidate, broken and imperfect as they are, just like the rest of us. And this is about as political as I will ever get, as you will ever hear me say. Get involved in politics. Get involved in government. Speak up for what matters to you. Government matters. Policies matter. Go and vote this week if God leads you to do that. But as you do, be careful where you place your hope. Be careful where you fix your eyes. Because where you put your hope will determine your joy. And if you place your hope on a temporary candidate, a government system, or on a policy, if your ultimate hope there, it's not going to last. If you place your hope on things that are eternal, it's going to last. So hear me say this. Get involved if God calls you to do that and go vote, but do not fix your eyes there. Do not fix your eyes there. Be men and women of faith as you engage in conversations with people in person and online, as you go and vote, as you listen to the news channels and all the information that's spouted out at you this week. Don't forget to be men and women of faith who are confident that God keeps his promises and is in control. No matter who wins on Tuesday, God is still the king of kings. Amen? Amen. And so we can trust in that. As Christians, we don't live in fear. We don't say, oh, what happens if this person gets elected? Oh, what happens if my policy doesn't get through or if this agenda doesn't get through? It might be the end of the world. You know what? If it's the end of the world, that's okay because we get to be with God forever. Amen? Amen? And that's what Paul's saying here at the end of the book of Philippians. You have nothing to fear. As Christians, the defining characteristics of your life should be love and joy and courage and confidence and faith. We don't freak out because joy is locked in, irregardless of our circumstances. We have joy. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on a political victory. Fix your eyes on the victory that was won for you, that has won eternity for you, that is way more important and way more lasting. Fix your eyes on being a part of a local church and building a kingdom that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom that's going to last. Fix your eyes on things that matter. That's why we're doing this giving campaign. That's why we exist as a church, because people in the city desperately need to know the love of Jesus Christ that will last forever. Don't let fear steal your joy, even on Tuesday. Be confident. And yet for some of you, you're saying, that's not really it, John. It, the thief of my joy is, well, you have no idea what I'm going through today. You have no idea the, the pain. I, just before I went up to preach, last, last service, I, two people said their parents died Three different people have cancer. One guy got evicted. And here I am preaching about joy. Don't let pain steal your joy. 
Because some of you are saying, John, this is great. It's a cute little sermon and everything like that. The laughing video, that's really cute and everything. But this joy you speak of seems a little naive, almost like cheap joy. Well, actually, it couldn't be the opposite. I, I love what the great Lutheran thinker and writer Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes. He says this. It's up on the screen. The joy of God, the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible. It is irrefutable. Get this. God's joy, the joy that he calls you to have, does not deny the anguish when it is there, but it finds God in the midst of it, in fact, precisely there. This isn't cheap joy we're talking about today. It was bought at a price on the cross. Joy does not pretend the pain isn't real. Instead, it says, I've got my hope in something far more lasting. Amen? This is why Paul concludes at the end of chapter 1, I just love this, at the end of Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's like if Paul walked in those back doors and walked down the, the aisle and went right up to you and grabbed you by the shoulders this morning and said, and, and, and grabbed you by the shoulders, looked you in the eyes and says, listen to me, you've got to get this. The worst possible thing that you could ever experience in this life, your death, your physical death or your spiritual death because what you deserve because of your sin. The worst possible thing that you could ever experience, your death that you are the most afraid of, that you are most fearful of, has been conquered, has been overcome. Your death your sin, the power of hell, the power of evil, anything this world could throw at us has been kicked to the curb. So we do not live in fear as Christians, not even of our own death. And that's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ. There's joy there. I get to share the gospel. But for me to die is gain. It's even better because then I get to see the source of my joy, the goal of my life, Jesus, face to face. You have nothing to lose. You have nothing to fear. Do you believe that? Live with faith. Amen? So as a follower of Jesus, you live with faith. You live with courage. You live with hope. How do you find joy? You latch your heart to the unshakable, unchanging love of Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do, is because people need to know that joy. Joy is everywhere if you'll look for it, especially in homes all over the country and all over the world last Wednesday. And I thought, we started with the Cubs. Let's end with the Cubs. We need some joy right in the middle of the kind of week it's been and right in the middle of whatever kind of week you have. As you watch this final video, some, some editors took people's home videos of them celebrating the last out when the Cubs won the World Series, and they spliced them all together. And as you watch this video, I don't want you to so much say, oh, it's about baseball or it's about the Cubs. I want you to see a God. Think about the God who created joy. The God who created the ability to laugh so hard that you cry and to cry tears of joy. And how this, it wasn't about baseball, it was about, get this, a bunch of people they're a part of a bigger story than they are, experiencing joy in the midst of a broken world. Hmm, that could describe Cubs fans or that could describe the church, us.
So as you watch this, don't think so much about the Cubs. Think about the God who wants to fill you up with his joy today. Let's take a look. Hey, church, what do you say? Is it a day to fly the W or what? As Cubs fans, they do this. This is my makeshift one I came up with in between services. After every victory, they do what? They fly the W. And I'm here today to tell you this. Not just when the Cubs World Series, not just when things are going well for you, not just when things are up for you. Every single day as a follower of Jesus, you fly that W. And you remember, not the Cubs victory, victory, you remember the victory that you have that is secured eternity for you. That is bigger than an election, it's bigger than a shooting, it's bigger than death, and it's bigger than anything you will face in this life. Fly that W, folks, because you have the ultimate victory today. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and prepare our hearts for communion. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus gathered around with his disciples, his closest friends, and he says, oh, I'm about to win you a victory. You don't know what's coming yet, but I want you to remember me. Every time you do this, remember that as I give you this bread, I'm, I'm breaking it, I'm giving thanks, and he said to them, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it, gave it to them, saying, take and drink. This is the new covenant of my blood. This is my promise to you. Death, my death, your death, isn't the end of the story. Take and drink, and remember, remember the sacrifice that I've made.